If you could please uh, open up your Bibles, uh, feel free to continue those conversations uh, afterwards. Open up your Bibles. We are in uh, the book of John, as we have been for uh, over a year now. Hopefully, we will finish this year. Uh, we're in chapter 17. We're reading from verses 1 through to 5. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, it should be up behind me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Eric, for reading God's word with that baritone tone. It is wonderful. It is wonderful. Well, church family and visitors, uh, if, you haven't, um, if I haven't met you before, my name's Darren, one of the pastors here, and it is a privilege to open God's word today. Uh, I'd love us first to turn to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll turn to his word uh, to hear it this morning. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a glorious privilege it is right now to not only have been given your word, but to spend time meditating upon it, considering it, enjoying you through it. And so we would pray now, steady our hearts to receive your word, open our eyes to see. May we hear your word and so keep it today. And as Nathan prayed earlier, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We may have heard of Napoleon Bonaparte. He's a military commander. He rose to prominence in the, during the French Revolution. But what you might not know, or maybe you do, it was when he was a young officer, he met a young woman named Josephine. And uh, whilst he was at war, he would regularly write to her. Some correspondence, I hear that she didn't often quite write back. But one of the letters that um, he, he wrote to her was found, and um, it contained some of the desires of his heart for this woman. So he, he writes in one of his letters, he says this to, to Josephine. A few days ago, I thought I loved you. But since I last saw you, I feel I love you a thousand times more. All the time I have known you, I adore you more each day. That just shows how wrong was La Bruyere's maximum that love comes all at once. Napoleon. That's gorgeous words. If Valentine's Day was upon us, maybe you would scribble them down, lads, and share them with your loved ones. But when you get an insight into the, the correspondence between two people, it's actually quite a precious thing. Well, in the passage that sets before us today, we don't have a love letter, per se, between two people. But what we do have is a prayer between God the Son and God the Father. In, in, in what has been described as perhaps the most sacred passage in the four Gospels, 
Actually, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to overstate the importance of the text we're in today. It was Leon Morris who said, no attempt to describe the prayer can give a just idea of its sublimity, its pathos, its touching yet exalted character, its tone at once of tenderness and triumphant expectation. To have been in the upper room when Jesus shared his words with his disciples is one thing. To be in the room with Jesus praying and talking to his Father is a glorious thing indeed. And the Holy Spirit has seen fit to preserve this, the longest prayer of Jesus, for our sake. And so in these 26 verses, you will perhaps find nothing more valuable in all of, our, all of Scripture. Here they are in front of us to, 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 to revel in, to enjoy, to meditate on. Take off your shoes, as it were, we are on holy ground. You're brought into the conversation of the triune God. Three observations before we enter the text. You observe first when the prayer is taking place, verse 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words. So Jesus has given a word of instruction, and now he's followed it with a prayer of petition. Calvin notes, Jesus here shows teachers an example that they should not only occupy themselves in sowing the word, but by mixing their prayer with it, should implore God's help, that his blessing should make their work fruitful. And what is true for teachers is most certainly true for Christians. Words may reach the ears with instruction, but they'll reach the heart through prayer. And prayer is the very means through which the instruction will come to pass. Think about this. Jesus, the one who will keep his disciples, prays that they may be kept. Jesus, the one who will protect them, prays that they will be protected. Secondly, note that this whole prayer, we read just the first five verses. I encourage you this week to read the rest of it. can be divided into three sections, as it were. Jesus praying for himself, verses 1 to 5. Secondly, Jesus praying for his disciples, verses 6 to 19. And then thirdly, Jesus praying for those who would believe. So us here today, verse 20 to 26. And thirdly, just, you'll notice what this prayer will contain. Over the coming weeks, you'll see this teased out. And we will finish the Gospel of John this year. And it actually, this prayer ties together the, the themes of John. You can kind of see them unfolding and being displayed as Jesus is talking to the Father. Themes that Jesus is the Messiah, that eternal life is in Him, the protection and preservation of His disciples in contrast to the world, the revelation of the Father, the fullness of joy, the glory of God. It's all here in this prayer, the themes of John being woven together, all of which pointing us to the central point of the whole Gospel of John, which is... That he's writing these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, have life in his name. And there are three observations, and to that end, we want to know today essentially three things. We want to know, talk about glory. We want to know who is the glory for. We want to ask the question, how did he get it? And we want to talk about the future glory that lies ahead. So firstly, who is the glory for? We've heard Jesus' departing words, now we hear his departing prayer. Verse 1, who is the glory for? When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, 
so that the Son may glorify you. This prayer and this petition here really is the controlling idea of the whole prayer, the, the glory of the Father. Jesus wants to God to the Father to glorify him so that he may glorify the Father. He wants his disciples to glorify the Father, and he wants his future disciples to glorify the Father. The idea of glory is used eight times in this prayer alone. Glory, glory. It's a glorious thing that Jesus is praying. The glory of God has been the focus of, of Jesus' whole life, hasn't it? Not one moment, not one thought, not one action has been done apart from to the glory of God. And in fact, it's a glory that he has been sharing with the Father since eternity past. We see that played out in verse 5, you notice, that Jesus prays to be glorified to the glory he had before the world existed. The triune God exists to glorify one another. We saw back in chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit is, there, is, is glorifying the Son. The Father is glorifying the Son. The Son is glorifying the Father. You have in the Holy Trinity this, this kind of mechanism of glory, of delight, of honoring, mutual praise and glory for one another. Jesus had an eternity past. He modeled in His life on this earth. He glorified the Father as He raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. He prayed to glorify the Father's name in chapter 13. And he clarified that he wasn't seeking his own glory compared to the Jewish leaders. He's about glorifying the Father. God is for God. That is the good news for us this morning. God is for God. God is about glorifying God. It's not wrong to center around him yourself when you are the center of all things. You and I are not the center of all things, and so to center our lives around ourselves would be sinful. But for God to center His whole life around Himself is, in fact, glorious. To do any less than that would be blasphemous. There's nothing higher to glorify. There's, there's no greater king to crown. No greater being in which to worship. For Jesus to do any less than to glorify the Father would be idolatrous. It would rob God of glory and it would rob us of joy. And so if God is for God, it's not a hard stretch to consider that we as His created beings ought to also be for God and for His glory. We should have in our life the highest aim to glorify God, to, to make much of Him. Now, the glory of God, you would have thought and meditated and considered, and it's peace out, and sometimes it, it just kind of lives in such this lofty land that we talk about it, and how does it land on the ground? Because really, we're talking about the gravity of it, the, the splendor, the, the glory of God referring to His majesty, His awesomeness, His wonder, His brilliance, His excellencies, His kind of wow factor, the glory of God. We might respond in glory when Queensland, Lord willing, will win another state of origin. Glory. An athlete is given the medal around their neck when they have won, and the anthem plays, and that moment is what? Glorious. There's a glory taking place. Pastor Kevin DeYoung helpfully illustrated to think of glory at a real street-level term. It's kind of like making a big deal of someone. We often do this on a, birth, a person's birthday, don't we? 
It's your birthday. We're going to make a big deal of you today. So you get to pick the meal. You get to pick where, what are we doing? How do we spend the day? And I know some of you are greedy and you've turned into birthday weeks. And this is all about you this whole week, what you want this whole week. It's your, but it's your birthday and so everyone kind of recognizes that's all right. It's your birthday after all. We'll, we'll make this about you. It's your birthday. But because of the sin that exists in each of us, our hearts are kind of turned on ourselves. We're, we're tempted to, to kind of think every day is birthday day. That everyone around should subtly, or not so subtly, be all about me. My timing, my preferences. I want my life to be about me. I want my spouse to be about me. I want my kids to be about me. I want my work to be about me. I want it all to be about me. I want to make a big deal of myself. That's because of sin. It's kind of, it's kind of distorted the idea of glory. And yet, we've been created not to glorify in ourselves, but to glorify God. For there is where the joy is. We are finite. We are limited in our ability to be glorious. Instead, God gives us Himself infinitely glorious, infinitely praiseworthy on every occasion, in every circumstance, for His nature, for His being, for His actions, presented before us to glorify Him. And in that, it is always fulfilling. It is always satisfying. It is always glorifying to Him, joy-giving. So the first question is, who is the glory for in this prayer? Who is He praying for? He's praying for the glory of God. So Jesus is doing. He's praying for the glory of God. He's praying that he might be glorified so the Father would be glorified. Now, how was this glory given? How did he get it? How was it achieved? You see, Jesus is asking here, Father, glorify me so that I may glorify you. So how is it that Jesus is glorified in order to glorify the Father? We notice verse 1 still. His prayer says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This hour the hour has come. This is kind of the moment that has triggered his prayer. Remember, his, his prayer isn't just taking place in a vacuum. His prayer is taking a place at a particular time. Here, the hour has come. If you've been tracking along with uh, the Gospel of John, he's been using this term hour to refer to the impending death of Christ, where he will be glorified through the cross. It's a, it's a train track that he, that he kind of hops on the, the death station, but it stops all stations through to glory. So you, you hop on, the, the train is coming, death is upon us, but it's going to be followed by burial, resurrection, and ascension, and glorification. Once he hops on, there's no hopping off. He's returning to the Father. So he's saying, Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me. My hour is here. Show the glory through the cross. Reveal your glory through the cross. The focus at the end of his life has been the focus throughout his life. He'll get glory when he returns to the Father, but here he's asking for the Father to glorify him through his death. We aren't to think that the cross is simply glorious in one sense, but then it's kind of a stepping stone to this greater glory, and it's, this was like a shameful thing that happened, but it was necessary in order to get greater glory. No, in fact, that the cross itself kind of is the crescendo of the glory. Don Carson puts it, the ultimate display of glory is not after the shame of the cross, but, but, but in the shame of the cross. 
See, it's in the shame of the cross that, that Jesus is actually glorifying the Father, that Jesus himself is being glorified by the Father. It's, it's totally counterintuitive the way that we would get glory or the way that we would go about it. When we would say, glorify me, we would, if, if we were to say it, we wouldn't be so bold as to say it, but if we were to say it, we'd be saying, make much of me, look at me. I've done something wonderful, I've done something great, lift me up, uh, my success. But, but for Jesus, he's thinking, when he's saying glorify me, he's, he's essentially saying crucify me. Yeah, lift me up, exalt me, but lift me up on the cross before a watching world. His glory and his death are connected. You can't separate them. The cross, though, is a hard sight, isn't it? In fact, if we were to bring a if you would ever have a, seen a cross or a crucifixion in the flesh, I stagger to believe that any of us would, would have eyes to look for very long. It's brutal. It's gruesome. It's bloody. It's violent. It's shameful. So what on earth is glorious about a death? How is Jesus connecting his glory with his crucifixion? Well, the cross is glorious for three reasons, I think. First reason is because of what it accomplished. It's not simply glorious because it was a death. I was watching a movie the other day, and these soldiers are being sent off to war, and the young soldiers are all excited about going off to war for the glory of war. And then 10 minutes later, they're on the front lines, being mowed down by machine guns, wanting to go home wanting to be held by their mothers. Death in itself isn't glorious. But here the death is. Something more is going on. John Piper in his excellent book, Spectacular Sins, says this of the glory of the cross. He says, the apex of evil achieved is the apex of the glory of Christ. At an all-important pivot of human history, the worst sin ever committed served to show the greatest glory of Christ and obtain the sin-conquering gift of God's grace. That's why the cross is glorious, because it's through the cross a way was paved for forgiveness to be made between humanity, to be restored to the Father. The penalty of sin paid for. People could partake in eternal life. Jesus was procuring this at the cross. See that in verse 2? The grounds for him glorifying the Father comes through his authority to give eternal life. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So how does the son give eternal life to all whom the father has given? Through his work on the cross. He won the right to impute righteousness to sinners by accomplishing the work required, by paying the debt of sin, by pacifying the holy wrath of God, by defeating death, ascending to to eternal life, and he now can now extend that to whoever he decides to give, all those who the Father have given him. This is the glorious outworking of God's plan of redemption. This was his plan all along from eternity past, to have a people for himself for all eternity. You see, the Father gives those who are his to the Son, and the Son gives eternal life to all those the Father has given him. Friends, eternal life, this is a gift, isn't it? You know, eternal life isn't a right. Eternal life is not a foot 
stomping thing you can demand before a holy God. It's a gift. Isn't it true sometimes you've had gifts given to you, but you don't really know what they're for? Maybe some of you are thinking about a family, usually an extended family Christmas. But you've been given some kind of gift or present, and it hasn't quite hit the mark. And you've opened it, and you know, usually when you're opening a present, about 50% through the wrapping paper, you've got an understanding of what it is. Soccer ball, deodorant can, sleepwear, whatever it might be. But some of you have made it through a gift, 100%, and you've, you're not even sure how to hold it. You don't know which way is up, and, and you're there, and you've, give, this is exciting. Um, this is part of it. Um, if you flop those things up and down, that'll, Lord willing, stop. Um, or, or it won't stop, and um, this adds to the excitement of what we're doing. We could change the colors. Um, ben Edwards, oh, here we go. So that's the feeling of the excitement. You're not sure what it is, and it's all happening. Well, friends, I think sometimes, I think sometimes, uh, Christians, the colors are coming. This is great. I just need someone up on synth, and it's all happening for the next 40 minutes. As believers, I think sometimes we are the recipients of eternal life, but we're just really actually not sure what to do with it. What's it for? But look at verse 3. You see Jesus' words? And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How valuable is this gift of eternal life? Is it simply just to extend my life beyond the grave? Does it simply just there to spare me from the pits of hell? Does, does eternal life kind of operate in the background of your life like a ticket that gets you access to heaven whilst you live out the rest of your life kind of disconnected from it? What Jesus is saying here in no uncertain terms, is that to have eternal life is to know God. To know Him. To be in relationship with Him. To be in close union with Him. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied of a time when this would be the case for his people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his, each brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. It is about knowing God. What's eternal life about? It's about knowing God. Um, when I met my wife, Tegan, met her from afar. We, we, we met at a dinner one evening, and um, she was in and around the lives of my friends for a bit. And I knew, I knew things about her. Uh, I knew she lived on a farm. I knew she liked country music. And I knew she was rather attractive. And, um, but it wasn't until actually entering the relationship with her and then being married to her that I truly got to know her, relationally know her, intimacy, knowledge. It's a glorious thing to know my wife. Maybe you've met people that it's a glorious thing to know, that you know them. The old phrase, it's not what you know, but who you know. That's true. Well, think about how glorious it is. It's good to know certain people, how much more to know God. 
to be known by Him relationally, closely, intimately. That's what eternal life is. That's where it's found. It's found in, tr- in knowing the only true God. Carson says, eternal life turns on nothing more and nothing less than knowledge of the true God. Knowing Him, friends, changes everything. Life can be changed by meeting one person, can't it? When that person entered your life, everything seemed to change. When, when you encounter the true and living God, it does change everything. And Jesus Christ, you have to see here, that's not just knowing God, but it's knowing the one whom he has sent. And so if you want to know God relationally, you need to know Jesus personally. You need to know Jesus personally. That's why you, there may be some who said, I know God, but I don't know Jesus, and I don't fully know God. For it is only through his messenger, Jesus, that God himself can be fully known. Without Christ, you wouldn't have a revelation of who God is. You wouldn't have a clearer picture of him. You would remain in your sins. We need to know him. We need to know Jesus. And this is eternal life. Knowing him, knowing the one who he sent. I asked this morning, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Do you understand him? Are you in relationship with Him? It's the only way to eternal life. Some of you may know, but, but sadly, Tim Keller passed away a couple nights ago. Age 72. Faithful man of God. A gift to the global church. And in his dying, some of his last words, as recorded by his sons, was saying, there's no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. Ready to see Jesus. Because what is eternal life? Knowing Him. Relationally for all eternity. Tim Keller received eternal life. Why? Because he received the Son. He received the Son. So, what is so glorious about what's accomplished here? Well, it's it's glorious because it's making eternal life possible. Jesus is saying, glorify me. This is the way eternal life is made possible. Secondly, his death on the cross is glorious because of the cost. Um, I think the movie Braveheart is a wonderful movie, is an excellent movie. Uh, if you don't, just, it's just brilliant. This is war and glory. It's just a and sacrifice. And, but it's, but it's, a, it's, it's glorious in part because of William Wallace's sacrifice. If it cost him nothing, I think the movie would be far less glorious, men with paint on their face. The freedom inspired cost him his life. And so the whole gospel, I think, is glorious. Meditate with me for a moment, because it cost Jesus everything he had. Sacrifices glory with the Father to take on human flesh. He gave up his prestige, gave up his position, gave up his privileges. He felt the sting of betrayal. He felt the sting of abandonment felt the Father depart as he atoned for the sins of the world. He gave his very life. That's what's glorious, isn't it? Sacrifice, costliness. When someone sacrifices their own good for your good, that is glorious. When someone sacrifices their own well-being for your well-being, that is glorious. When someone sacrifices their own glory so that you may be glorified, that is glorious. That's what's happening here on the cross. It's glorious 
because of what it accomplished. It's glorious because of the sacrifice. And thirdly, it's glorious in what it reveals about God. The Son seeking to glorify the Father, the Father glorifying the Son. This has a spillover effect to humanity. The triune God is expressing and exhibiting their character so that you, the, the, the world would know the love of God. In fact, as Moses, who asked to see God's glory, you remember God's reply? He says, I will have, I'll cause my, my goodness to pass before you. We have on the cross that which is revealing the glory of God, and we have the goodness of God being revealed as His Son atones for sin. His glory reveals His goodness, His love for the world and for His chosen pe- people. In the midst of shame and agony and this brutal death, you see the glorious aspects of who God is. Can you think of any aspect of God, any aspect of Him that is not revealed supremely in the cross? His infinite wisdom, compassion, justice, mercy, tenderness, hope, faithfulness, obedience, power, victory, it's all there on the cross, all revealing His glory, all revealing His splendor. The cross is glorious because of what it accomplished. It is glorious because of the cost it took. And friends, it is glorious because of what it revealed. The cross is the only place that Jesus will receive glory and so glorify the Father. We see that Jesus would receive future glory as he returns to the Father. And that's the third point of our consideration, future glory. And the future glory that Jesus has in mind here is connected to his past accomplishments of his, and his work. Read me in verse 4. Glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glory comes through amazing accomplishments, doesn't it? You know, when the Sydney Harbour Bridge was constructed, it opened after eight years of construction on the 19th of March, um, 1932. There's 120,000 people gathered to, to celebrate this. And you, can, you can watch a little clip online, it's quite amazing. Um, as the ribbon was cut, the, the commentator is, is, is saying this. He's saying, can you hear that clapping? Can you hear that cheering? Jack Lang has just cut the ribbon. A rocket has gone up in the air. Planes are going overhead. People are yelling and people are that excited on this, the greatest day in the world, I suppose, glorious. The videos captures it and people start. There's a processional across the, bri- across the bridge, the, the band out front, the workers, some 2,000 of them. Students from the Sydney University, cricketers, sporting persons, horses, politicians, it's all there walking gloriously across this bridge. It's an incredible thing. Now, but the glory didn't come when the bridge was half built, did it? I think everyone would recognize if you're having the glorious moment where the two sides are yet to connect. Underwhelming. No, no, glory comes through accomplishments, the work that's done, like an athlete receiving a medal. But it maybe it'll raise the question for you, if Jesus is saying here, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, 
The discerning reader might ask, ah, but he hasn't yet gone to the cross. So how is it that he's speaking about already accomplishing the work that Father gave him to do when that work is not yet actually done? Well, one way to answer that question is going to require our English teachers to pay attention is that Jesus, or all of us actually, Jesus is speaking proleptically. Now, if you're like me, you have no idea what that word is. I didn't either. Had to Google it. Proleptically. It comes from the word prolepsis, meaning the assumption of a future act or development as if presently existing or accomplished. Jesus is speaking as if the work is already done. He'll use similar language again in verse 12. In verse 12, he says to the Father, Whilst I was with them, I kept them in your name. Well, Jesus is still with them, isn't he? He hasn't left them yet, but he's talking about it past tense. Jesus is speaking pro, with prolepsis. So he's heading and he's considering that the work is already accomplished. Now, I think there's another way to help fill out perhaps some of this work. Either, yes, A, including the cross that is to come, which is glorious, but B, another option is the work that he has achieved is kind of spelt out for us in verse 6 to 8. So verse 4 reads, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. If you go to verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. I think this is part of the work Jesus is talking about, part of the work which he has accomplished. The two aspects of this work, what's he done? He's revealed the Father's name, and he's made sure his disciples have received his words. He's revealed the Father's name, and he's made sure they received his words. Reveals the Father's name is to reveal all that the Father stands for. The name is everything it stands for. Jesus' revelation was visible to the whole world. It was only seen by those who had hearts open to it. They would receive it. And they're identified in verse 6 as those who have kept God's word. Kept God's word. Now, the discerning reader might also say, well, hang on a sec. These disciples have not exactly kept every word that Jesus has said. In fact, Peter's going to swing his sword very soon and do the very opposite of what Jesus' teaching said to do. This is true that the disciples are still much in, are very much in the dark on a few matters, and the understanding will come in time. But they have kept the message of God, the Word of God, to believe upon the Son, to believe upon Jesus Christ, and so have eternal life in His name. That much they have kept. And so reveal themselves as ones who belong by the Father and are given to the Son. So there is a beauty of the plan of redemption that's playing out here. Jesus is saying, I've done the work you called me to do, Father. I've shown them who you are and they've kept your word. Now in John's gospel, we also see an invitation for anyone who comes to Jesus. Anyone who takes him at his word. Anyone who drinks from him, feeds on him, comes to him, receives him. Anyone who receives the one who Father sent, all these will have eternal life. And so you can pick up a bit of the tension. All those who come to Jesus are given 
by the Father to Jesus. All those who believe in the words of Jesus are given by the Father to Jesus. Romans 10, 13 says that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Here Jesus is teasing out the inner workings of the mysterious plan of redemption between the Father and the Son. And friends, it is glorious. There is none that the Father gives that the Son misses or skips over. Jesus has them all and extends eternal life to them all. Friends, if Jesus is revealing the Father, then everyone, you must understand, you must receive Jesus' words if you are to have eternal life. To reject his words is to reject the Father. To reject Jesus is to reject the Father. And to receive Jesus is to follow and obey his words. To trust him. To take him at his word. To believe upon Jesus. That he'll die. He'll be buried. And he'll rise again for the forgiveness of sin. If Jesus thinks it's necessary in this prayer to communicate to the Father about his glorious work, I wonder if you would indulge me by way of application just to consider how glorious it is. Have you considered how glorious Jesus' work was? Firstly, his work was glorious because he was actually obedient to the work. I'm sure your boss at work, he or she finds joy and glory in you obeying the job you've been given to do. They certainly wouldn't find disobedience very glorious. Jesus obeys the work. He did the work the Father gave him to do. He didn't reject any of it. He didn't avoid any of it. When the cost was high, he paid it. And when the task was difficult, he faced it. Jesus' work was glorious because he was obedient. Secondly, he completed his work. None of his work was left undone. A half-clean kitchen is a kitchen half-dirty. That's not glorious. But for Christ, all the work was accomplished. Every person who was to hear his teaching heard it. Every sickness that was to be healed by him was healed. Every person who was given to him by the Father was kept. His work was perfect. It wasn't like he completed the task, but upon a further inspection, it was like, well, man, there are some deficiencies here. His teaching wasn't flawed incomplete or insufficient. No sentence of Jesus could be improved upon or phrased better. His interaction with people required no self-reflection afterwards to see whether his motives were correct. Jesus never once finished a day and thought, I squandered that or I could have done better. Never distracted, never wasteful, what glorious work. And his friends, his motives were pure. Jesus never had a, a contest between motives that was for his own promotion or for the promotion of the Father's glory. He never had to question whether he was loving, whether loving his disciples was, was more about serving them or his own need for affirmation. His motives were pure. His work, friends, is simply glorious when we consider it. Unlike many of us, the paperwork didn't pile up. There were no missed calls, unanswered emails, no projects half completed, task lists overflowing, no miscommunication. His work was supremely glorious. Oh, to have one day, yet one hour of supremely fulfilling the work that God has called us to do like this. That would be a gift. And friends, our Savior did such work hour after hour, day after day, year after year. 
never skipped a beat. Employee of the month every time. Glorious work. Perfect work. So it was done. I think Jesus' work encourages us as an example, doesn't it? Not only to think in the standard, the quality of his work, which is most certainly exceptional. And so we, in all work we do, vocational, whether paid or unpaid, ought to be done for the glory of the Father in obedience to the Lord. But friends, his work also helps us understand the limitations of his scope. Geographically, he was limited. Socially, relationally, Jesus did not meet all the needs of the world, of all people, for all time. And neither is the work set out for us by the Lord. We as his people are to embrace his humanity, embrace your finiteness, embrace your embeddedness into a community and seek a ministry, a kind of work that is grounded to neighbors, to loved ones, to members and visitors with eyes to see those around us, to prayerfully and intentionally seek to do good to the work that he's called us to do. No more, no less, friends, glorious in the Father's sight. So put together with me the the past success of the disciples receiving his word and Jesus revealing the Father. Put that with his future accomplishments on the cross where he's atoning for sin, glorifying the Father. And you've got the glorious works that Jesus has for the grounds through which he will be glorified before the Father and return to his former glory. One writer says in this final request, Jesus' vision sweeps up beyond the seething waters of his passion to embrace the bright shore which beckons him on the further side of the river. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Like a champion who shrugs off vain efforts of his enemies to detain him as he moves upon his triumphant way, so Jesus marches into the dark valley of pain and humiliation with eyes open to the glory which the Father holds out to him beyond the sufferings of death. The future exaltation of heaven is before him. Father, glorify me. Return me to that glory. Two simple points of application, I think, for this morning. The first point is simply this. Uh, Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. Jesus felt it necessary to bring petitions before his Father in order to accomplish the work that was set before him. Jesus prayed. We know he's always been praying throughout the Gospels. Mark and Luke's Gospels are always recording him ducking out to pray. Often he's praying to the Father verbally in a way that the disciples can hear. Jesus loved to commune with his Father. Oh, it was a happy place for him. And here in his moment of death, he's praying. This is exactly what you'd expect for someone who's in a close relationship with their father, to pray. And it's this oneness between the son and the father, this glorious oneness that Jesus, I'm going to give a bit away, but later he wants the whole church to be swept up into. Verse 21 says, he's praying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Friends, Jesus prays and he's inviting us into this communion, into this relationship of the Godhead. It is incredible. It is glorious. It is a privilege. 
Jesus models us to us what to do and how to do it. But before the prayer sets an example for us to imitate, I think it sets a stage to be fulfilled. See, Jesus, with death before him, isn't struck by some kind of fatalistic passivity. He intentionally leans into prayer to bring about the outcomes that he's been wanting to see, to walk in obedience. Since this hour is upon me, now I shall pray. Jesus isn't dealing in hypothetical or theoretical ways of praying when life gets tough. He's, He's doing it. Prayer is the means through which he, he will fulfill the task ahead of him. It's the ends of faithful obedience that's being brought about and the glory of God being revealed. He's praying that God would be glorified because that's what he wants to do. Prayers are necessary to that end. And that leads to the second point of application. The nature of the prayer in this prayer is concerned most with the glory of God. God be glorified. We sung it earlier, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. All glory is to be for Him, everything. Jesus is concerned with glorifying the Father and the Father and glorifying the Son. If that is the case, then all we not set our lives on the glory of God. Is this not what your eyes and your hearts desire much more than the glories of this world that are passing and fading away? Is this not the quest, I think as C.S. Lewis said, the quest of Uh, career and art and love and travel and these things is trying to seek glory, find glory. God is saying, let these things sweep you up into the glory of Him. I wonder this morning if you need strength to get your life consumed with the glory of God. Do you need help to get your prayers concerned with the glory of God? How do we do that? How does this passage help us? I think this passage helps us by looking at what Jesus says is most glorious. And that's him on the cross. Friends, we get helped to take our eyes off ourselves, self-glory, by putting our eyes and setting them upon Christ on the cross, that which is most glorious. The need for self-glory fades as you are struck by the glory of Jesus. You see on the cross the glory of God, which is the good news your soul needs. Tim Keller famously summed up this glorious good news so well when he said, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. At the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. In the glory of the cross, those two things meet. That's glorious. Your pride, staring at the cross, will wilt away because it will show you just how sinful you are that it was necessary that Jesus had to die he had to do work on your behalf because you just you and I are just not good enough but also as you stare at the cross your insecurities will begin to melt away because on the cross you have the father glorifying the son and you have the son chosen by the father gifting you eternal life for you to receive If you're struggling with self-glory, come sit at the cross. (laughs) Come and behold. Come and see it. Stare at it. And then, friends, pray it. Pray for it. I think we should be praying that God would be glorified in our life as often as you are tempted towards self-glory. 
We ought to be praying for God to be glorified in our life at minimum as often as you are tempted towards self-glory. So if you are like me and you share the human condition, this will be a daily prayer, but it will be a glorious one. Let us pray.